Uh, good evening, everybody. It's great to have us um, all here uh, together, worshiping together, uh, gathering to hear um, God speak to us uh, through um, His Word. Uh, if you do have your Bibles in front of you, please keep them up uh, in front of you. The, the tradition, the custom that we have here at Village Church, we work through uh, books of the Bible, three chapters of the Bible, so it'd be really helpful if you, as we follow along the talk, that you um, follow along um, in the Word as we work through God's Word together. Uh, just also a heads up, uh, we, we like to gather together as a, as a church to pray. Uh, our main uh, form of congregational prayer meeting is every Tuesday morning between 6 and 8 a.m. Uh, so we meet between 6 and 7 and 7 and 8. We meet on Zoom, we meet online. Uh, and it's just a great way to be able to come together across our city uh, to pray uh, for our church, uh, to pray for our needs as a city, uh, to pray for our country, for our leaders, for the needs around the world. Uh, it's a great way to be able to join with others uh, to be able to do that. And I know it's hard to meet together physically at 6 a.m., uh, but it's wonderful that we can actually do that across Zoom. We will advertise that. We usually promote that on our uh, Facebook group. Uh, so if you join our Facebook group, then you can get the details. And if you've never joined before, uh, please you're very feel, feel free to come and join us um, as we join together uh, to pray uh, together as a church. 6 a.m. to 8 a.m., Come for five minutes, come for 30 minutes, come for the whole time. It'd be great if you could join us on a Sunday, or on a Tuesday morning. Thank you. Well, let's pray. Ask for God's help as we come to his word this evening. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much uh, for your goodness to us. Uh, we thank you so much for your word. Uh, we thank you so much that you speak to us. We thank you for your spirit that is present here with us. So we ask you as we open up your word this evening, please speak to us. Please challenge us. Please move us. Please make us more into the image of Christ. Uh, please encourage us. And Lord, I pray uh, that you might fill us with your spirit, that we might live uh, for your fame and your, for, for your glory, Lord, in all that we do. Because we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, my kids uh, thought that they went to a Christian school um, in Ireland. Um, they didn't, but they thought they did. The reason why is because in Ireland, Christian schools still have school assemblies. Sorry, state schools still have school assemblies. And at school assemblies, pastors come every week to come and speak to all the kids about Jesus. They sing Christian songs. And when my kids left the school, their parting gift was a picture Bible from the school principal. When they arrived here in Australia, the situation was very different. Uh, my daughter, Maggie, uh, she was in grade two. Um, she was at Junction Park Primary School. And they were playing a kind of a get to know you game in the class. Put your hand up if you love. You know, put your hand up if you love skipping. Put your hand up if you love chocolate. You know, put your hand up if you love pink. And it came to my daughter, Maggie. And so she put her hand up and she said, Put your hand up if you love Jesus. No one put their hand up. The teacher kind of a, turned a, a shade of white. Some students looked a bit confused. You know, they kind of a, looked down at their feet. And Maggie knew that some of those kids in the class loved Jesus. She knew that some of those kids went to church. And she was also confused about why the other kids hadn't put their hand up. And so she was left with her hand dangling in the air alone. You know, Maggie learned a lesson that morning. You know, if you want to go far in Australian society, if you want to keep your friends, if you want to keep your job, if you want to get a good job or promotion, 
just keep your head down and don't ever embarrass yourself and mention Jesus, especially not in public. Talk about everything else, even talk about God sometimes, but never mention Jesus. And maybe you've experienced something similar. Maybe you've lost friends because you're a Christian. Maybe you're ostracized in a, in a family group chat because of your faith. I still remember standing next to my parents' bedroom as my non-Christian father told my Christian mother how embarrassed he was of me because I was a follower of Jesus. That's hard. That's painful. You sometimes feel, you know, like you're walking in eggshells with other people when it comes to your beliefs. You feel uncomfortable maybe on Monday morning when someone asks you how your weekend went and you, you've, you've you know, had a great weekend, you've never been to church and you've, done some, you've met people at church, but when they ask you about your weekend, do you talk about you know, the footy on the Saturday night or the nice lunch that you had on Sunday afternoon? You're afraid of what people might think of you because you anticipate the awkward pause when you bring up your faith. So you just keep quiet. You know, all of us are very aware of the cold reception that our culture can give us when people find out that we're followers of Jesus. And in other cultures around the world, people can often find themselves serving time in prison or even facing death simply because they confess faith in Jesus. But why do people hate us so much? Why do we make people feel uncomfortable? Well, Jesus gives a number of reasons. He says in verse 18, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. The world will hate you because it hates Jesus. You know, there it is. You know, sometimes people will simply dislike you because you identify with Jesus. Now, when I first uh, came to Australia, I lived down in Melbourne. I lived in Parkville. I lived quite close to the Optus Oval, which was the home ground of the Carlton Football Club in Melbourne. And so whenever people would ask me what team I supported, I would often say, um, Carlton. I knew nothing about AFL but I just said Carlton because they were my local team. But as soon as I said Carlton, people would go off. Now, I never realized, I didn't understand why people hated Carlton Football Club so much, but just identifying with them put me in the firing line. And when we simply identify with Jesus, we too can face that same kind of hostility that they also faced, that he faced. You know, Carlton supporters are not surprised with the hostility that they get because they support Carlton, and neither should we as Christians if we choose to identify with Christ. You know, the world might also hate you because you do not belong to the world anymore. Jesus says in verses 19 and 20, you know, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, 
the world hates you. The world here, um, in this part of John's gospel, is, is everything in this world that stands in opposition to God. So it's natural, you know, if you belong, or if you're, you've been chosen by God, if you now belong to him, then this world will do everything it can to oppose you because it's opposing Christ. And you're now with Christ. It will do everything to try and beat you down. And in these verses, you know, I think it's also important to note that the world that John is referring to, it also includes the religious establishment at the time. Chapter 16, verses 2 to 3. Is that chapter 16, 2 to 3 there? No. Okay. No, we, we read, you know, they will ban you from the synagogues. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think that he is offering service to God. They will do these things because they haven't known the Father or me. They here refers to the Jewish religious, the Jewish religious establishment who reject Jesus and who refuse to accept his teaching. Despite how these religious leaders might look, despite how religious they might act, they do not know God. They do not know God just like the world doesn't know God. And the world and the religious leaders in these verses, they appear to be, they seem to be synonymous. The world, you know, with its non-Christian religious establishment that is hostile to God, whether it's like radical Islam or nationalistic Hinduism or wokeism or secularism or atheism, or the Christian religious establishment that is hostile to God, whether it's from a Presbyterian or from an Anglican or from an evangelical or liberal or even ultra-conservative places, in, in God's eyes, they are, in Jesus' eyes, they are inseparable. By standing against Jesus and what he stands for, the religious establishment has shown itself to be no different from the world. In fact, they have shown themselves to be part of the world. Whoever is standing against Jesus, no matter who you are, no matter what, if you are standing against Jesus, you, are stand, you do not know God. We read in, we read in verse 3, they will do these things because they haven't known the Father or me. You know, one of the, the things that the early Christians had to get their heads around was the, the refusal of the Jews not only to accept Jesus, but also the way that they hunted Christians down, the way that they imprisoned Christians, the way that they went to kill those who followed Christ. You know, and I've also found, you know, you know over the years that the the most opposition that I have faced as a follower of Jesus, it hasn't been from those outside the church, but often it's been from those inside. You know, when I was a teenager, I used to bring my non-Christian friends along to church, and they'd come along, and most of them didn't know how to behave in church, so I started bringing them along to the, to the youth club where they'd play table tennis and ping pong, and they'd hang out. And even there, the church leaders were just longing for the slightest mistake to kick these kids out. And when it eventually did happen, I remember standing at the door of the church with these two leaders down at the door of the church, you know, looking and 
and shouting at these young guys and these young guys standing and shouting back at these leaders and, and I was standing in between and I found myself facing the church leaders trying to defend the young men that were being kicked out of the church. In Japan, I was kicked out of a church for foolishly believing that the gospel message was for everyone. I started bringing a whole range of different kinds of people to church, people who were homeless, people who you know, had nowhere else to go. We, kind of, we brought all these people to church. Uh, and then after a while, they were also you know, cast out of the church as well. As I tried to help this group of people, this vulnerable group of people, you know, lies were spread around in Japan about me. I was branded as a church splitter. I was called a troublemaker. Now, even here in Brisbane, you know, sometimes leaders have accused me of being a bit liberal because of the way that we as a church practically seek to care for the most vulnerable people in our community. Some of the most damning, some of the most soul-destroying emails that I've ever received have been from Christians and not from non-Christian colleagues or friends. You know, as Christians, we do such a good job at shooting our own. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I am far from being perfect. Across my walk with Christ, I have made many mistakes. As a pastor, I make many mistakes. I make wrong choices. You are very welcome as a church to push back at me anytime you want, because guess what? I am not perfect and I make mistakes. I am wrong. I'm wrong a lot of the time. But there's a big time, there's a big difference between pushing back and actually standing opposed to Christ and against the gospel and against his work. In chapter 16, verse 1, Jesus says that he has told us these things to keep us from stumbling. We shouldn't be surprised when the world and even parts of the established church hate us because we belong to Jesus. Jesus says in verse 20, you know, a, a servant is not greater than his master. If you follow Jesus, do you think you can walk differently from him? If we're following Jesus, we're following one who has been persecuted. You cannot walk differently from him. You know, can you avoid rejection? Can you avoid persecution? He says, no, you can't. He says, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. You know, to be banned from the synagogue was to be cold-shouldered. It was to be cancelled. It was to be ghosted. It was to have your reputation shredded, to be publicly shamed, to be humiliated. It's to lose your family and friends. It's to, it's to be cut off from those closest to you. People who thought that you were friends end up disowning you. And Jesus says, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Verses 22 to 25, it looks like Jesus is, is saying uh, what he's saying. Um, it looks like Jesus is saying that if he hadn't come, then people might have continued to live without sin. He says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. And I think the sin that Jesus is referring to is 
their rejection of him, you know, the hatred of him. That's what he's been talking about. It's, it's, it is through Jesus' words and actions, it's though it's kind of like smoked out these religious leaders. You know, a few months ago, um, we had a bit of a, a cockroach outbreak in our car. Uh, my wife, she hates Gucky Birdie, she hates cockroaches. Uh, you know, if she sees a cockroach, she kind of won't even look at it. She, she screams and we have to come and kind of like pick it up. And so for a long time, my wife, you know, refused to travel in my car. Um, so I got one of those kind of like bug bombs, you know, that you detonate, you know, the, the smoke bombs. And I detonated it in my car. It was just, you know, kind of detonated when all the smoke kind of like fills the car, all the windows are closed. And I left the car overnight. And the next day when I opened the door, there were these dead cockroaches who were like slimed along the side of the door of the car. And it was as if the bomb kind of had smoked these cockroaches out from the shadows. Just as they had been trying to escape, they got caught. And I think Jesus is coming. It's, it's doing the same thing. It's smoking out the religious leaders. It's smoking out how they really believe, what they really believe about God. It's smoking out their hatred of Jesus. It's smoking out their hatred of Jesus. And it shows that they don't really know God at all. Jesus is quoting from Psalm 69, verse 4. And the full verses, you know, it reads this, Those who hate him without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. Many are my enemies without cause, and those who seek to destroy me. People are just lining up one by one to hate Jesus. You know, it's like a lot of queues, a lot of, you know, queues, like, especially if you're in a place like Japan, everybody just, there's, there's queues everywhere, everybody just lines up for the sake of lining up. A little, there's a queue, there's a long line there. And just People are lining up, doing that to Jesus. They're just lining up, attacking him, opposing him. People just going along with the crowd. You know, the one thing I, I want to draw from these verses is the fact that the reason why people often react the way that they do against Jesus is because they don't know Jesus at all. You know, I can take persecution in the name of Christ. I can take it. I can face people's hatred of me because of their hatred of who Jesus is and who he claims to be. When I'm speaking to a Muslim friend and he takes offense because I say that Jesus was the Son of God, he was God and he died on a cross, and when they take offense of that, I can live with that kind of hatred, that kind of opposition. But most of the opposition that I face is from people who think that they know Jesus, but they don't know Jesus at all. Most of the people I met have never had a Christian friend. They don't know a Christian. Lots of people today in our society have never met or they don't know what a, a Christian is or who a Christian is. They don't have a Christian neighbor, a Christian friend. So they've never had exposure to Jesus or to the church. I meet people in their 20s whose their only experience of Christianity is the unhelpful kind of stereotypes they get from Netflix or from TV or from movies, you know, from Squid Game or the Da Vinci Code or Chocolat or Boy Raised and so on. Or the Christianity that they're exposed to through Ricky Gervais in a comedy routine, which is often mocking Christians or mocking the Christian faith. I meet people who have only observed Christianity in a, in a very negative way. My, my nephew um, 
in Ireland. You know, he, he lives in a neighbourhood, uh, a bit of a, like, a, like maybe if you just imagine in a church, like he's just living across the main road. He's living in, a, in a, an area, in a, main, in a neighbourhood. And uh, every Sunday, the church members would sit in the car park and they'd, sorry, they'd stand in the car park with their suits on. They'd lock up the gates of the church. There was a big calligraphy that said, prepare to meet their God. They'd have a loudspeaker and they would be shouting and they'd be preaching a message through the loudspeaker across the main road with cars going by into the local neighborhood. And my nephew, you know, he said, Sam, all I heard was just like a racket. So what is that? Like, there was this, this gargled kind of way, noise that was going on outside. And you could see people opening their doors and looking up the street. What's going on? You know, the, and the cars are going past. They couldn't hear anything. And it was collectively in the community, people would just close their windows. It was just noise. And sadly, that's a lot of the ways in which people have been exposed even to, to Christianity, even in our own culture very negative ways. Lots of people in Brisbane who meet me, they almost have an allergic reaction when they find out that I'm a pastor. And they have that reaction often because of the abuse that they've experienced at the hands of people who call themselves Christians. A lot of the time, the Jesus that they're hating, the Jesus that they are adversely reacting to, it's not the Jesus of the Bible. And I think sometimes we misinterpret their understanding as hatred and so we take a step away from them in fear instead of walking towards them in mercy. Now I want to give people the license to hate me because they think they know who Jesus is. I feel sad because they really do not know Jesus. You know, if, if they get to know Jesus and it only solidifies their hatred in him, in some ways, I can take that. But I think we all have a job to do in helping our friends and family to get a clearer picture of who Jesus is. Jesus says he tells us these things to stop us from stumbling. He doesn't use bait and switch. He doesn't promise one thing and then deliver something else. He's clear, and he wants to make sure that we hear him this evening. He says, if you follow Jesus, you will be persecuted. So do not be surprised as though something strange was happening to you when it does happen. In chapter 16, Jesus goes on to remind us that when we face that the fiercest opposition from the world, we never face it alone because he abides with us. Verse 5 seems to be quite, you know, a strange verse. Because back in chapter 13, verse 36, Peter, it seems, you know, has asked Jesus already, where are you going? In chapter 14, verse 6, Thomas seems to ask a similar kind of question. But now Jesus says, none of you is asking where I'm going. I mean, has Jesus kind of like somehow forgotten what Peter and Thomas has said? And I think it's more like, you know, Peter and Thomas, they, they weren't really concerned with where Jesus was going. They were more concerned about what was going to happen when they got left behind. It's a bit like a hungry teenager at dinner. You know, the mother's going out, um, it's, it's dinner time, and she suddenly decided, I have to leave, and so she's going out, and the teenager asks the mom, where are you going? And the teenager's not interested where the mom's going, he just looks at the watch and goes, it's dinner time and I'm hungry. And I think that's a little bit of what's, what's happening here with these disciples. I think they're more wrapped up with, with how they are feeling and then Jesus says something really surprising in verse 7. 
He says, nevertheless, I am telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away. Jesus is saying to us this evening that it, that it is really a good thing that Jesus isn't with us here tonight in this church, worshiping with us, you know, you know, here in the flesh. Why does Jesus say that's the case? Well, he says it because he says, if I do not go away, the counselor will not come to you. And if I go, I will send him to you. The word counselor, um, of course, it refers to the third person, the Trinity, refers to the Holy Spirit. The word comes from the Greek, the parakletos, which means the one who draws alongside. Sometimes it's referred to as the helper. And you can see why it's good that Jesus isn't here physically with us in verses 8 to 10. It is the Spirit, he says. Is that working? Is that 8 to 10? Sean, if, it's, if it doesn't come, can you just press your mind? Sorry. Um, it's the Spirit who personally draws alongside each of us to convict us of our sin. It's the Holy Spirit who convinces you that, you're, that you are not at the center of the world and you don't have the power nor the right to set your own course in life. It's the Holy Spirit who draws alongside us to convince us of our need of salvation. It's the Holy Spirit who points to the solution to, of our sin, to, to Christ and to the cross. It's the Holy Spirit who, who brings the powerful weight of the work of the cross on us in dealing with our guilt. It's the Holy Spirit who applies the righteousness of, of Christ to us. It's the Holy Spirit who removes our shame. It's the Holy Spirit who, who clothes us with the righteousness of Jesus. So that the moment that we are saved, we stand completely cleansed. We stand completely forgiven before God. It's the Holy Spirit who applies Christ's victory over Satan on the cross to us. When Jesus crushes the head of the ruler of the world, Satan, on the cross, he also crushes the judgment of death that we all deserve. We no longer need to fear eternal judgment or death. It is the Spirit who, who draws alongside us to convince us of all these truths. It's the Spirit who opens up our eyes and convinces us of, the, of, our real, of the reality of sin, the reality of judgment, and the potential of a new life in Christ. And it's also the Spirit who, who draws alongside us to work through us, to work through our actions, to work through our words, to help convict other people around us of sin and righteousness and judgment. You know, if Jesus was here this evening, if, if Jesus had not sent his Spirit, but rather he was physically present here, we would have Jesus here with us this evening, but nobody else would have Jesus. No other church, no other place in the world would have Jesus. Rather, he abides with us. He abides with every believer through the Holy Spirit so that when we proclaim the words of Christ to one another, when we respond in repentance and faith, when we love one another as Christ loves us, when we live without guilt, when we live without shame, when we live without fear of judgment, we experience the life of Jesus with us as a community. And as we experience that life, we begin to show those around clearly who Jesus is. You know, Jesus' answer to a world bent on rejecting and destroying the church is a church that is filled with the life of Jesus through the life-giving of the Holy Spirit. From verses 12 to 15, Jesus gives another 
answer to the world's opposition. You know, sometimes Christians have used these words to promote the idea that the Holy Spirit, you know, he gives all these new ideas. The Bible is constantly in need of updating and through the Holy Spirit we kind of have this kind of hotline to God 24-7 where God speaks to us and so we don't really need the Bible anymore. Long time ago, even as an, as an early, as a young Christian, I used to believe that, you know, even when I was first a pastor, that's how I would prefer, prepare a sermon. I would come and I would kind of focus all my time up there, trying to get revelation from God to try then to understand the Bible, and rather than actually coming to God's Word and kind of digging around, trying to find the gold that was already there. You know, that's not what Jesus is saying. In fact, that he's, he's actually saying the opposite. When Jesus speaks these words, he's not primarily speaking to you. Rather, he's speaking to these early disciples, and we can see that in chapter 15, 26, 27, and also the beginning of chapter 16. None of us have been with Jesus from the beginning. Jesus is speaking principally to his disciples. Therefore, you know, what Jesus is saying, he's saying that it is the Holy Spirit who will lead these apostles into not just all truths, but he will lead them into the truth. Verse 13, did you notice that? It's just starts leading them into truth. It's leading them into the truth. And the purpose of the Holy Spirit isn't just to, to, to glorify, it isn't to glorify himself, but the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus. I went to a church once in, in Singapore and they were saying that the Holy Spirit, he's one third of the Trinity. And you know, the Spirit is one third, Father is one third, you know, Jesus the Son is one third. They all deserve equal attention. And so this church in particular was all about taking the Holy Spirit and bringing the Holy Spirit into the spotlight. But I imagined the Holy Spirit off at the side of the stage yelling no because the Holy Spirit has a super trooper light and he's shining that super trooper light in Jesus. That's what his role is. And he does that through enabling these early apostles, minus Judas, later added Matthias and, and later on Paul, to come into all the truth so that everything that God the Father gives to God the Son can be known by you and by me through the word of the Spirit and the word of the gospel. And that means that what we have in our hands the same thing, the word of God that we have, whether it's electronically, whether it's actually physically in a Bible, is what God has to say to you. It's all that God has to say to you. God's comfort, God's goodness, God's resource to a church under fire is the life-giving, life-changing, living, abiding Word of God. I mean, do you want to meet God this week? Do you want to encounter Jesus every day? Well, you can do that as you meet with Him in His Word. Do not be surprised if the world hates you don't be surprised if the world hates you because you follow Jesus. You know, you may be even opposed. You may be attacked. 
by those who claim to follow Christ. But don't be discouraged. His Spirit is with you. His Spirit is at work in you. His Spirit is work in the world. His fingerprints are all over the lives of your family and your friends. God abides with you and his word is sufficient comfort to sustain you. To, to, say, to sustain you in whatever you will face this year, God's word and his spirit is sufficient. We're going to respond right now by singing that last um, song again. Um, abide. Let's all stand up together. The band wants to come forward. I want to just draw attention to a 